So this is the final of our Forgotten God series. And if you've been tracking with us, we have been in the book of Micah. Micah, this minor prophet with a major message. And four weeks ago, we cracked open the book of Micah, and chapter 1, verse 1 opened with this line. The word of the Lord came to Micah from Moresheth. In other words, Micah from the outback. And through this working-class country boy, dubbed the people's prophet, whose very name means who is like the Lord, the whole nation of Israel gets to hear the words of God. And what a word it is. Let's pray. Truly, God, who is like you? There is no God like you. From everlasting, from everlasting, you are God. And so, God, tonight, I just pray as we crack open your word, and it feels like a holy moment, and as we crack open your word, God, I pray that you would speak a fresh ring or word to each and every single one of us. And when you speak it, that it would take root in us and that we would be changed. We would walk out of here changed. So, God, I just pray tonight that you would still my heart, that you would um, hide my flesh behind the cross and only let me say what you want me to say. Bless the words that come out of my mouth, God. And most of all, I pray that you would have your way, have your way, have your way with your people tonight. Not our will, but your will be done. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. amen. <laughs> so it's not often you hear a book of the prophets preached because, to be honest, um, prophets can sound like cranky, whiny guys. And if you are like me, you like happy books. You like happy books of the Bible. Um, but obviously God has his reasons why there are 17 books of the prophets in the Bible. And one of the reasons, and we have said it throughout this whole series, is justice. See, our God loves justice. And because he loves justice, God would raise up prophets in the Old Testament who took on injustice. And not just injustice in other nations, the prophets took on injustice in their own people. And not just inside Israel either. They took on injustice with kings, they took on the wealthy, and they took on the powerful. And for a slide, am I on? Hang on. Yeah, got it. They would lift the lid, swing back the curtain, expose the underbelly of what was really going on. Why? Because our God loves justice. And in the Old Testament, God revealed to the world through his people that he is the one true God, creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. And he wants to be known, known personally. He is the redeemer who makes good out of bad. He's a father who has compassion on his children. And one of the best, one of the best things about God is that he is just. And you see this all throughout scripture, over and over. It says, for I, the Lord, love justice. And that's in Isaiah 61, 8. Psalm 99, 4. Psalm 99, 4. Um, says he rules the world with righteousness and Judges the people with equity. Sorry, that's Psalm 9.8. Psalm 19.9, the laws of the Lord are true, and all of them are righteous. Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge. 
See, over 200 times justice is mentioned in the Bible. And often you will see the words righteous and justice paired together. You see, our God loves justice. And in the book of Deuteronomy, in the beginning of your Bible, when God is giving Moses instructions on how to govern his people, he says to them, appoint judges and officials for yourselves from each of your tribes and all the towns the Lord your God is giving you. They must judge the people fairly. You must never twist justice or show, imp- or show partiality. Never accept a bribe. For bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. You see, our God loves justice. You see, even the Greeks had statues built with blindfolds to express the idea that justice should be impartial. They would build statues where these figures of justice would be holding scales to show that justice should be fair. There should be no cheating, no tipping of the scales. But the irony is, The Greek gods were not just at all. I mean, Zeus was just as fickle as any human being. But for Israel, what was so unique for them is that justice was not just simply a human quest or a human frustration, but justice is rooted in in God's character. And like Colin said a couple weeks ago, justice is at the heart of the gospel. And in Micah's day, The Assyrian army was wreaking havoc and starting to take over Israel. And the prophets like Micah and his contemporary Isaiah said that this is happening because Israel has turned away from following God. God's people have rebelled. They start worshiping and sacrificing to foreign gods. The priests and prophets are taking bribes. Um, Land is being stolen from the people. And the list goes just on and on and on. The point is, all all are corrupt. And God lets Micah see the heinous sin and the appalling injustice of the people through his eyes, through God's eyes. And that's the prophetic heart. Because God loves justice, judgment is coming. And God's people are scared. And they start to ask, where is God and why is this happening to us? Why isn't he protecting us if we are his chosen people? And they start blaming God for all their hardship. And the word of the Lord came to Micah. And now we come to Micah 6, and it's a courtroom scene. There has been a breach of contract between God and Israel. The Lord has a case against his people. And church, I'm no Judge Judy, but I've always wanted to do this. Court is in session. Court is in session. So ready, Micah 6, chapter 1. Hear ye, hear ye, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people, and he will bring charges against Israel. I just want to stop there. God has called the mountains and the hills to be his witnesses. Now, it's a powerful, powerful image because man... If these mountains could talk, they could tell a story of the things they have seen. You see, the story of Israel could almost be a story of mountains. For example, in Genesis, God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac up Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. But God stops him at the last minute and says, no, do not harm the boy. Now I know that you love me and I see your faith. Moses goes up Mount Sinai to get the law, the Ten Commandments, from God to give to the people. 
David creates Jerusalem up Mount Zion. Elijah fought the prophets on Mount, Mor- and Mount Horeb. These are all these mountains that have been around longer than Israel. And God says these mountains have seen our story, and they can judge between us. And God continues in verse 3. And listen to the tone change of God. So they're in a courtroom. And then God says this, oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Other versions in your Bible will say, what have I done to make you weary of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, oh, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, where I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? These are stunning, amazing verses. And the phrase that God uses that gets me every time is, this three, is three words, oh, my people. Oh, my people. This weary nation is blaming God for all their, all their troubles, and God replies with, oh, my people. Even though you are weary, you are still my people. Even though things are difficult for you, you are still my people. Even though you have been unfaithful to me over and over and over, you are still my people. And in verses 4 and 5, to defend himself, as if God even has to, God starts to recount their history by looking back and remembering, recalling all that God has done and how he has been faithful to them. Now, parents in the house, have you ever done that? When your children are complaining and being ungrateful, do you ever start to remind them of all that you have done for them? My husband Peter used to do this all the time when our daughters were living at home, especially if they ever got really stroppy with me. He would tell them in a quivery voice for effect, don't you remember when your mama would mop your brow when you had a fever? She would stay up with you all night and never leave your side. And sometimes it worked, um, but other times they would just roll their eyes and say, oh, Dad. You see, in these verses, God starts to recount their history. And it's like he's giving them an antidote for their weariness. He starts with reminding them how he rescued them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And you can read all about the wondrous miracles God did when he performed, that he performed in the book of Exodus. And then God starts to remind him about the Moabite king called Balak. And you can read about that in Numbers, who was threatened by Israel as they were starting to get close to the promised land. And he got this prophet, Balaam. It's a great story. And he says, I need you to curse these people. Curse them because I fear them and I don't want them to overpower us. And in numerous attempts, Balaam tries to curse them, but he can't. God won't let him. And he ends up blessing Israel and cursing the Moabite army instead. God is reminding the people that even the other nations saw that you were blessed and I didn't let them curse you. And then he reminds them of Gilgal, their first camp in the promised land after he miraculously, miraculously parted the Jordan River for the people to cross over. And that's in Joshua 3. He is showing them that he didn't just save them and then leave them to fend for themselves. No, he saved them, and then he stayed with them. But God's people don't get it. 
So they try to settle out of court by trying to give God what they think he wants. So in verse 6, they start by saying, what can we bring to the Lord? What does God want? Now listen to the escalation. Should we bring him burnt offerings? I mean, anybody could bring a burnt offering. A handful of grain was affordable. Is that what God wants? Should we bow down before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? You see, only wealthy people could afford that. Maybe only the wealthy can give God what he is looking for. Should we offer him thousands of rams? Only a king could do that. How about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Now that's impossible. It can't be done. How about this? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? It sounds unthinkable, but in, the, but in that ancient culture, there were, there were people who did that. Is that what God wants? In verse 8, one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament, I think, is this. And God answers this, no, oh, my people. The Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, is to act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is profound because what God is saying is, it's not about what you do. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. It's not about all the external offerings you make to me. What I care about is that you are mine. And when you are mine, this is what your life looks like. And the New Testament version of this verse is found in Matthew 22, when someone asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, doing justice and love, kindness, and walk humbly with your God, these are not three separate things. They are all connected. A great definition of biblical justice that I love so much is this. It says, you should never treat a human being as if they had less worth than they have. I'll read that again. You should never treat a human being as if they had less worth than they have. You see, justice means recognizing and honoring the excellence of God's creation. What God values above all else is people. Biblical justice means I never treat any person, no matter what they look like, no matter how different I think they are from me, I never treat any human being as having less worth than what they have. So, we, we do justice. We do justice because God loves justice. And when you walk with God, we become reflectors of God's heart and his character. So how are we meant to do this? How are we meant to respond to this? Do we walk around feeling guilty all the time? Because it can be really overwhelming because justice is so vast and so big. And knowing what the right thing to do is so complex that it can be paralyzing. And so we do nothing. We do nothing because it's so big. Both Colin and Bernie said that to start small. Start by reading the book of Micah or writing letters to the local government to help change policies. Try voting. Get involved in local initiatives in your communities and here at BBC, initiatives that help the most vulnerable, like Good Neighbor 
or Kaimunga, our food pantry program, where you donate food and then we dispense it in brown paper bags to the community. We've got the, um, the Fadi Kura, which is the Maori Immersion School next door. And they're always looking for people to come and cook breakfast for the students there in the morning because they often come without food. We have the ICONS program here where they come and they do all sorts of amazing things with um, young boys, which is absolutely fantastic. And men mentoring um, young boys is fantastic. Look, there's just so many things that you can get involved with. But what I'm going to suggest is that you start even smaller than that. You see, justice starts at home. It's making beds, doing dishes, running errands, paying bills, speaking truth, sharing the remote, cheating on a test, um, not cheating on a test. <laughs> don't do that, don't do that. Not cheating on a test, giving credit to a coworker. These are the tiny places where justice is born or where justice dies a little. Justice begins at home. And this has really been speaking a word to me. And then that flows into your neighborhood. And then it flows into your workplace. And then it flows into your community and city. Start at home. The next one is love kindness or love mercy, whatever your translation is. Notice it doesn't say that we are to be characterized by mercy. No, the verse says that we are to love mercy. We are to love living like this. In Hebrew, the word for kindness or mercy is hesed, and is usually um, translated as steadfast love, a steadfast love, and it refers to God's love. Now, God's steadfast love is his unconditional love towards us, and God's hesed love always expresses itself in action. You see, love moves. It's an action word. And start small with that, too. Give people the dignity of notice. Notice the people around you as you go about your day. And sometimes you will sense the Holy Spirit nudging you towards an act of kindness or to say yes to a request. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes it is awkward as. It is so awkward. I've got two stories to share with you, and I'm wondering whether I should share which one because one of them makes me look really ridiculous, and the other one, maybe the other one. So which one? Ridiculous or whatever. Okay, I'll share the ridiculous one because um, <laughs> I look like an idiot. But I, my, in my defense, I'm American, and we do everything on a big scale. So I grew up hearing, go big or go home. So that's my defense. I was at the hospital in the waiting room um, a couple months ago, and there was this old couple that had been there, I guess, for three hours. The husband was having some treatment. And the room was full of people. And um, I could hear the old woman say to her husband, and they were elderly, like they would have been in their late 80s, early 90s, I'm guessing. And I could hear her say, we forgot our wallets. We left in such a hurry. We have no money for food. And I heard her ask the nurse, was there a sandwich? Because apparently she had been handing out sandwiches earlier. And she said, no, those sandwiches are only for the patients. They'd already been there three and a half, four hours. Um, so I was just about to leave. And as I'm leaving, I'm thinking, ooh, ooh. So I'm walking past the cafe on the way out of the hospital. And I feel God say, go and get her a sandwich. So I go in, and there's all the variety of sandwiches. OK, which one? Ham, chicken, egg, vegetable, I don't know. 
So me being American, I got all of them. <laughs> Why not? And then I, I can't stop myself. So I'm like, get all of them. Oh, maybe they want some fruit. Oh, I'll get one banana. They'll probably want water, two things of water. They probably want something a little sweet too. So, okay, I'll get some muesli bars, but maybe they're, they're gluten-free, so I'll get that. I'll get some nuts. And before I knew it, no jokes, I had a massive big bag full of stuff. And I'm like, okay, I will just go back and drop it off at reception so I don't have to talk to them, so, I'll, so they don't know, so I will go. So as I walk in, no receptionist. I'm like, um, I have no paper. What should I do? I think, okay, I'll go in and go and give it to them. And there's a room full of people, so I'm kind of like trying to whisper to them, and they, they're not, they can't hear. Um, hi, this is for you. And I know, I know you heard, I heard you say you were hungry. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I heard you say you wanted a sandwich. Here are some sandwiches. And she's like, what, dear? <laughs> so I'm having to really shout now and say here. And she says, thank you. And I says, whatever you don't like, just share out with the whole thing. And everybody's looking at me, and I feel like a total idiot because I'm just like over-talking. I've got this bag full of groceries, and she must think I'm an idiot. So I just hobbled myself right out of there. So that's story one. So of just starting small, of just doing something, you look around, the dignity of notice. It's just a small little thing that I did, and I... Yeah, it's just a small little thing. And then one time I got a phone call, and I've never told this story to anyone. And I'm reluctant to do so. I haven't told this, that other story either. Um, but I feel like God wants me to share it. I once had an elderly lady call me a while back and asked if there were any audio recordings of the Bible study we were doing at the time at Serious Coffee, our women's ministry here at BBC. <clears throat> And she said that she was vision impaired and almost blind. And so she was finding it really, really hard to fill out her workbook. That went with this video series. She enjoyed listening to the video sessions, but felt like she was really missing out on what everyone had been learning in their workbooks. And so she asked me, were there any audio recordings of the workbook? Not the video sessions, the workbook. No, I said. And just as I was about to tell her, sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. I felt God say to me, you can do that. You are always saying your body may be falling apart, but your mouth is working just fine. So use it. Do it. So that's exactly what I did. I recorded on cassette, and I had to hunt down. Do they even make them anymore? I had to go all over, all over town to find cassettes and hunt down an old recorder for my girls, a little old um, PlayStation or whatever it was, a recorder. And I read every word of a Beth Moore workbook. And for you women out there who have ever done one of her studies, she talks and writes a lot. Every week for months, I sent her a cassette tape with me reading to her. And what was so cute that months later, she sent me a card with $5 in it thanking me for my time. It was so cute. It was such a small act of kindness. But can I tell you that God ministered so deeply to me during that time? when I would sit and read that I would have to stop the tape recorder because the content made me cry like a baby. The point is, if you are willing, God will, God will use you, flawed as you are, flawed as I am, to be an agent of kindness and mercy. Amen? So do justice, love kindness, and the crescendo. Walk humbly with your God.
I'm going to invite the band up. This has to be where we launch from church. I'm convinced of it more and more. We won't be able to do the other two without burning out or getting cynical unless this is where we launch from. Walk in the Bible is a metaphor for intimacy and relationship. Walking with God means that I have an intimate relationship with God, which means that I am totally exposed and accountable to him. No hiding. Every part of my life is exposed before him. You don't just let God into part of your life. You are not one way in public and another way in private. You bring him every part of your life. And walking with God means that you and I are changing and growing. We are growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And walking with God means that you are totally loved by him unconditionally. I heard this great quote that said, the best missionaries are the best worshipers. But I reckon we should flip that. The best worshipers are the best missionaries. You see, the book of Micah has so much to say about missions and loving your neighbor. And we could have spent every Sunday night preaching from the from the front, from this stage, that you need to love your neighbor, you need to love your neighbor, you need to love your neighbor. But isn't it more impactful for me to say, God loves you. God loves you. God's forgiven you. God's been faithful to you. And because of the good news of the gospel, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came from heaven to earth to live the perfect life we could not, to die the death we deserve, to take upon himself our sin and our shame forever, all so we could get more of God. Embracing that breathtaking grace is what creates a church on mission. And the best missionary are not those who think, I need to tell someone about Jesus, I need to tell someone about Jesus, I need to tell someone about Jesus. The best missionaries are those that wake up and say, I am loved by Jesus. I am loved by him. And that reality drives us to our knees and humble. And as we focus in on this, mission becomes an overflow. That's what mission is. It's an overflow of the love of God. An overflow of the gospel is when we become so saturated and excited about what God has done and what he is doing that we can't help, we can't help but bring this message to the world. The gospel is not do more to prove you love God. The gospel is now, is know that you are loved. And that will change how you live and engage the world. And in this court, Kate, as it closes, at the end of the book of Micah is a stunning verse. And it's this. Here's the verdict. Who is a God like you? who pardons sins and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledge an oath to our ancestors in the days long ago. So now, church, now you know. 
what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice and to love kindness and mercy and to walk humbly before your God. Let's pray. in our midst, Lord. And I ask that you would start change with me. Help me to be sensitive to your spirit and to notice what's going on around me. And when you nudge me to move, in Jesus' name, not because I have to, but because of this great love you have that I can't help but share it. I pray that for everyone here that we've become so saturated with the breathless wonder of what you've done in your love for us that it would just overflow. Pour your spirit out in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. We worship and adore you. In Jesus' precious name.